How do you explain what you find most exciting about birds? For most of us in the birding community, we often resort to language reserved for celebrity sightings or tales of adventure and hyperbolic descriptions of beauty and having our breath taken away. For Don Kruzma, a lifelong research scientist, he has approached that question from the ranks of scientific rigor, academic excellence, and unfettered field research. And rather than just being laser-focused on quick and accurate identification, perhaps to add to our own prestige and growing life list, Don hopes that we would not just identify the bird, but identify with the bird. What is that bird thinking? Beginning at a time when research required lugging heavy equipment into the field, Don asked a seemingly simple question about a singing Bewick's wren, where did that young male learn to sing his song? That question launched Don to become one of our nation's leading experts on birdsong. Built on decades of teaching ornithology, primarily at the University of Massachusetts, Don has published significant books on birdsong accessible to everyone. His Backyard Birdsong Guides, published in 2008, has sold nearly a half million copies. Although now long retired from academic life, Don is still passionate about listening, recording, and seeking to celebrate the wonder of birdsong. His contributions to those of us who treasure birds sheds further light on the close, sometimes uncomfortable relationship between science and passion. It is my honor to welcome Don Kruzma to Voices of Birding History. Well, Don, tell me a little bit about when and where you first got involved with birds. Oh, my. I was a chemistry major in college, and I was frustrated. I even went to the local seminary next door as it, when I was a junior in college, wondering if I should go into the ministry because this was the background in which I grew up, uh, religious, Western mm. Michigan. And I finally said, no, I got to get out of chemistry. I had spent a summer in a chemistry laboratory and said, wow, everything's happening outside the window, not inside these test tubes. So I picked up enough for a biology major, and it wasn't until the second semester of my senior year when I had to have a required course, a required project for a vertebrate biology course, that I settled on watching the migration of birds through a local marsh. Hmm. And wow, I got totally hooked. These birds were phenomenal. I was out every possible day I could, keeping lists of everything that came through. There was a LeConte sparrow that was really special. There was May 5, 1968, 50 years ago. May 5, I remember about <laughs> very early in the morning, the early morning sun shining on them, a marsh run on a cattail tip facing the sunrise. And they're not always easy to see, are they? They aren't, but uh, this was early in the season, and he was right there in my face as if he was telling me, you know, wrens would be okay if you, you spent some time studying them the rest of your life. So that was that is the most intense period of what I would think is called birding that I have done in my 50 years of uh, this love affair with birds. Do you have some recollection of becoming aware of the larger community? When did that happen and what was going on kind of in that larger community? For me, there was no connection to a larger community at all. It was, it was a required course, a required project for this course. Then that summer, knowing that I knew relatively little about birds, I went and took two ornithology courses from Olin Sewell Pettingill, the famed Pettingill at the University of Michigan field station uh, at the tip of the mitten, Pelston, Michigan. So there I 
formed friends with maybe a dozen or two other ornithologists, we called ourselves. Mm -hmm. But for the next four years, we communicated with each other. We kept our lists. We had quantity and quality awards. And I had I had moved out to Oregon, so I got the most different birds from everybody else. So I routinely, routinely got the quality awards, but certainly not the quantity awards. Well, it was clear probably to you that there were people that were just all into quantity, trying to see as many as they possibly could, yet you kind of took a different tack. Well, it was not so clear to me at that point. It, mm -hmm. it, was, it was more simply because I was in the western part of the country and everybody else was in the east. I, if I had, could have gone for a quantity award, I might have done that, but... Hmm. But I was relegated to the West where, the, where there aren't quite as many different species, or maybe I didn't work at it quite as hard. But the quality was easy for me because nobody else was going to see a Townsend's warbler and a varied thrush and all those good things from out West. So that was really the birding community that I knew of. It was only this dozen or two people who had taken these ornithology courses. And when you think back now and, and where birding has gone, especially in North America, but also all around the world in terms of the number of people that are out every day tracking down birds, as you were doing research, as you kind of pursued more of that um, type of career, tell me a little bit about how that developed, what you decided to do, how you got involved with birdsong in particular. Yeah, I think, as I, as I said, Ray, I, I was an intense birder for two months. <laughs> and then and then somewhat less of a birder for four years. And then science just got in the way. Or got in the I didn't way have, of what? In, in the way of, of going out on a leisurely day and, and, and trying to see or hear as many species as possible. Right. There were no there were no outings devoted directly to just enjoying the the great variety. There was the requirements. I've had three requirements for courses that have just dictated what I've done the rest of my life. There was another required project required project required for a, a course in behavioral ecology. This was the spring of '69. And about this time, I was driving all over creation in Oregon looking for a research project for my Ph.D. It turns out the big questions are right there in the backyard where I was living. There was a wren singing, and I started to ask questions about that wren, mostly for this required project for the course, but then it quickly became you know, the focus of my thesis. And the simple question was just listening to that wren and Buick's wren's uh, you know, fabulous singers up and down the West Coast, just listening to that wren and saying, you know, as if I were talking to him, saying, Mr. Wren, where did you get your song? A simple question, but not so easy to answer. No. Because what it required was that I did something over the next few years, and I didn't know what my prospects for success would be. What I had to do was go out to a wildlife refuge in the Willamette Valley of Oregon, band as many adult males as I could to cover a large area, I don't know, 50 birds or so. And then I had to catch a whole bunch of babies, this was an adventure in itself. I would, wow. yeah. they would, they would leave the nest, and I'd travel around as a little flock together, and I'd try to imagine myself as one of these wrens. Where are they going to go next? Down this fence row? Can I herd them down this fence row? Can I, can I set up a net along this fence row and then herd them into the net and then slip those colored bands on their legs so that I can follow them through the binoculars over the coming year? Or if it wasn't a fence row, could I edge them up close to the net and then throw a projectile above them and over the tree and force them down to the ground and into the 
so it was it was a great adventure just catching these birds and then we know that birds disperse sometimes in some species you never see a, a marked baby again but these were resident birds so i was fairly confident that i would see a number of them again and sure enough covering this refuge through the winter through the next spring i found maybe six or seven i forget and the simple question of from whom do they learn their songs was evident that they learned not from dad but from the other males where the young bird set up his lifelong territory hmm. mile or so away so there were miniature dialects that you could chart for these buick's friends each male having you know, 15 to 20 different songs there's a lot yeah there's a lot of songs but all all of those songs for one little grouping were slightly or you know drastically different from all the songs in another little grouping of birds a mile away. So the young bird just rejected all of Dad's songs and learned the songs at that new location. And this was very satisfying. This is the first time someone had actually followed these young birds in the field and answered that deceptively simple question. Did you have a sense when you were doing this research that you were contributing in your own way to a much larger picture of what was going on in the world of ornithology? Well, yeah, the, all the, most of the bird song literature at that time, uh, a lot of work had been done in the laboratory. And the inferences were made about the timing of learning and where the birds might have been in the field and whether they had already dispersed or not. And so I felt a lot of the common understanding, I felt the consensus was just plain wrong, that hmm. these young birds do not learn from their father because uh, it just didn't make sense to me from, based on what I saw and how rapidly songs changed over distance in the field. So yeah, as a as a budding scientist, as a budding ornithologist, one, one hopes to address some questions that will contribute in well, a minor or, or a major way to our understanding of birds. And I'd like to think that that graduate project, maybe the piece of work that I'm most proud of in all those 50 years, yeah, sure. uh, was, uh, was an important contribution. Tell me a little bit about the, uh, the equipment that you were using in the 60s and what has happened with the ability to record birdsong since that time? Oh, my. <laughs> oh, my. You know, I think of correctotype. You probably know what, don't know what correctotype is. I don't. Is. No, I you don't. don't. <laughs> uh, or let's go to a more relevant example. Now when we want to, well, let's start with the basics first. Uh, we had large reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders. They yes, were heavy. I do remember those. <laughs> They were very heavy, and I've got a bunch of them here as doorstoppers in my office. And the tape was expensive, and I was on a limited budget. So when I was recording, I could estimate when a bird would sing. And if I wanted an hour's worth of recording from a bird, I would push the pause button during the time I thought he was going to be silent, let it up when he sang, and put... Of course, you get no continuous record. Today, why well, you record, record directly digitally to a hard drive on a little computer you carry over your shoulder. And it wasn't just the recording. The analysis was extremely time-consuming. You had something called a K-sonograph, and it would take about five minutes to make a sonogram, this frequency time graph. Take about five minutes to make a sonogram of 2.4 seconds of song. Wow. And you'd... You made these sonograms by putting a piece of paper on a metal drum, and then a stylus would, this drum would spin around, and the stylus, a stylus would work its way up that paper, burning into the paper. 
by a means of a spark between this metal stylus and the metal drum, you'd actually burn the sonogram right into that paper. And now today, you know, just today, I've I record or yesterday, take yesterday. I went out. I was after some pigeon recordings, and uh, there was a nest up there, and I just stuck my shotgun microphone up near the nest and down to my digital recorder. I had an hour's worth of recordings, which takes up minimal space on my terabyte hard drives. I could go to my computer. I could pull up a couple of software programs. I could see the whole hour you know, simultaneously. I could right. zoom in on particular, there are two particular minutes that were a special. I could keep the whole hour and put it in my archive or I could you know, excerpt those two. It's extraordinary what, what we can do with a computer. Yes. Yeah. And we, we did, if you want to do a, some precise editing of sound why on a computer, it is so easy. Back then, I had a product, product called Magnacy, and I would actually take this, this um, reel-to-reel tape, dip it into this liquid, and pull it out, and then you could actually see in that quarter-inch tape where the most intense sounds were, and you could sort of see a sonogram on that cord, and then you could splice, you could cut the tape, put the pieces together, and create what you, well, taking hours and hours and days and weeks to do what you can do in a few minutes now. What, a, what a distance we've come. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about what birding led to. What happened in your life as a result of asking that question? Well, this, the question really challenged the work of the top ornithologist uh, who studied birdsong in the country, Peter Marler. And Peter Marler was opening a field station at Rockefeller University in New York. And to his credit, he said, well, you know, this guy's challenging everything I thought was happening with birdsong. Let's bring him on. That's, uh, so I had a wonderful postdoc and assistant professor position for eight years as a result of this work with Peter Marler with minimal teaching. And I had time to just ask questions mm-hmm. about birdsong and pursue those questions and try to come up with answers. It, it was a luxury very few people ever have in their, their research careers. And what did that lead to? Well, it led to the difficulty of finding a real job after that. <laughs> these, were, these weren't easy years. It's never easy for an academic to, to find a position. And I was actually had an interview all set up with IBM as a technical writer for their, their manuals. And days before I was going to go for that interview, I got an offer from the University of Massachusetts. There was also an off- offer from San Francisco State. The teaching load was so heavy, and I don't think I could have afforded to live there. And from University of Miami in Florida, not an easy place to thrive on a, as a field biologist. So UMass uh, came through with a nice position. And I spent you know, 23 and a half years on the faculty That's here. A long time. That was a long time, I felt. It was easy, it was easy to leave after 23 and a half years and, and find another life. And you were obviously teaching as well as uh, continuing to do research. And th- this preceded or was this during the time when you uh, wrote your books? I was teaching uh, ornithology. And I volunteered to teach a writing course when somebody in our department had to do it. I did not profess to be a writing expert, but said, man, I'm going to learn a lot about writing and writing, writing might lead somewhere. So yeah, and then there's on the side, there's, there's, uh, well, on the side or, you know, university expects it at the forefront, doing research, bringing in research money overhead to support the university. It's, it has increasingly become big business. 
uh, for researchers to bring in the money. So yeah, for for all these years at the university, it was a combination of teaching and and doing research. And again, this this wonderful luxury of looking out at the world, going for a walk walk out into it, knowing a bit about this or that, and saying, wow. We don't know the answer to that question. How does that fit in with all the other stuff I know? And and then bringing on graduate students who were eager to do the same kind of thing. So it was, it's a pretty exhilarating uh, way to move through a profession and a life. One of your books, Backyard Birdsong Guides, uh, which came out in 2008, sold an awful lot of copies, some 400,000. Was that a surprise to you? Did you have some sense of what was going on, that there was a demand for that type of thing? Well, Ray, let, let me just back up and say sure. how this, this whole thing developed. Becker and Meyer is a book packager out in oh, the Seattle area, and they put a book together with you know, lots of pictures and this electronic module. And it was a biggish book. And then working with Cornell, they said, well, we want to do a smaller book. And my friend Greg Budney, who was curator at the, at the Macaulay Library at Cornell, said, you well, the guy you need to do this is Kruzma. So they contacted me and I basically said to them, well, the quality of the sounds in your electronic module are so bad in this first version that I'll be willing to put the book f- together for you, but I won't put my name on it, <laughs> which they said, well, wait a minute. Um, that was the whole idea here. So they worked very hard to get those sounds up to quality. And I wrote the text and they brought some artists on board. And, you know, Ray, I was at that point probably still a stuffy ornithologist who did not appreciate how this might take you know, the, should I call it the birding community? It's more than the birding community by storm, though. It's, it's kids, it's grandkids, it's grandparents. Yes. It's, it's, uh, it's the ability to hear the song right there by pushing this little button on the electronic module, and you see it. And, and I would like to think that my descriptions, too, of how you listen to this bird, right. not just to identify it, but to try to crawl inside its head. That's, that's been my passion to... Uh, Instead of trying to identify a bird, my passion is is to try to convey to people how to identify with the bird. You come as close as you can to being inside the head of this bird, knowing how to listen to it, listening to successive songs from a thrush or a sparrow, knowing what comes next, why things change when they do or how often they change. So was I surprised when this thing is... Well, it's approaching half a million now. Um, a bit surprised, I guess, but but in retrospect, you know, what a fool not to have expected it, I guess. Right. Well, there is a um, a desire, I think, for a lot of people to become just simply better at what they're observing and what they're listening to. But there was maybe something more than that with that particular book. You've written several other books as well. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, the first book, The Singing Life of Birds, came out in 2005, I guess, and and I had a number of false starts on it. I had an agent who just rejected me twice and kind of laughed at what I was writing, and, and rightfully so. So I went, there was a little too much passion in it. So I just backed up and I studied a lot of styles and said, okay, well, I think I've got it. I think I I think I see how to do this. And then I submitted it to five university presses and they all wanted it. And at this point, the agent said, oh, maybe I can help you now. So, so he submitted it to Houghton Mifflin and a few other places. And this was 
This was my attempt as a research scientist to just explain what it is that I find so exciting about birds, about almost every question that you could ask about how or why or where or when a bird sings. How, how, do, how does he find his song in both, both an evolutionary time scale and, and during that first year, like those Buick friends we were talking about earlier? And it was wonderfully received. I, there are sonograms in the book. And the editors asked me about these sonograms. I said, well, got to have sonograms. You've got you to be able to see the song as you hear it. Um, and uh, sonograms have since then, I'd like to think my book was a catalyst. Sonograms since then mm -hmm. have become a lot more popular. Not everybody loves them, of course, but but to many of us, it is seeing. It's the interplay of the eye and the ear. Mm -hmm. You know, the ear hears something, and you say, did I really hear that? You look at a sonogram, you say, aha, there it is. Oh, but there's something else I should have heard. Let me listen for it again. So it's the it's the interplay, I think, between eyes and ears that that really helps our... Oh, I often use the word pathetic when I talk about our human hearing, because it is so inferior to what birds can hear. When I asked you uh, previously when we were talking about whether a bird has joy in singing versus our joy in listening to that bird sing, and you mentioned at one time you were more of a stuffy ornithologist, can you talk a little <laughs> bit about just that progression of awareness in yourself? Yes. Uh, oh, a good scientist demands rigor. I guess I would start with that. Well, we go out and listen to a singing bird, Ray, and, you know, we could stand side by side and we could both say, you know, we hear happiness. But it's probably our happiness that we're hearing right. or feeling. <laughs> we cannot declare it's the birds. We don't know what's in that bird's head. Back in 2005, when my Singing Life of Birds came out, another book came out by David Rothenberg entitled Why Birds Sing. I think he would accept the description that he is a philosopher and a musician. And he's not a scientist, but he would declare that, you know, birds sing for joy. And I can't do that. I can say, I'm certainly joyful when I hear one. But if he's going to say that birds sing for joy, that implies that, well, they're doing it for nothing but joy. Because they sing so much, they're singing for joy. But then I have to remind him that male birds are most, they are bachelors because they sing all day long. And as soon as they pair off with a female, they do a lot less singing. And I have to remind him that, well, that female bird who doesn't sing, why, why is she, she so joyless? And that cicada singing all day long? Are we really going to say <laughs> that cicada is singing for joy too? And so this loose thinking gets you into trouble and, and, I would be the first to say that, well, a mockingbird or a songbird singing all day long, well, it can't be painful. Uh, maybe there are endorphins running through the body of this bird that physiologically, you know, tells the brain of this bird that, you know, it's doing a good thing, but we just don't know. And a book entitled Is Bird Song Music that was just produced by, written by uh, an Australian friend who you have some incredible birds singing incredible sounds, but to me, I can't ask that question, is birdsong music? I, I can ask, what are the features of birdsong that we can also find in human music and vice versa? But to ask whether the birdsong is music, that all depends on a 
on the answer to the question, well, what is music? And so we can't make much progress in answering is birdsong music. So when I say stuffy, I, you know, Rothenberg too, the musician philosopher will say, well, listen, I can go to an aviary and I can start playing my trumpet or whatever. I don't think it was a trumpet. He played something. He played a musical instrument, fine musician, and the bird started to sing. And he says, aha, look. But then I come along and say, well, you've got to ask Okay, David, what do you do with with my observation that when we have birds in captivity and we want them to sing, we turn on a vacuum cleaner? We create a lot of white noise. You have to, before you say that the birds are responding to my music, you have to test other forms of sound. And if they're responding just as much to white noise in a vacuum cleaner as to his music that he's producing, you can't say anything specific about birds responding to music. So it's it's just pointedly asking key questions that take people, I would say, back down to earth and to what we know and what we can know. Do you think there's there's as much rigor today in the scientific community when it comes to bird research as ever? Or do you think that the explosion of the interest in birding has brought a different type of researcher into the uh, into the academic world? I know of fantastic scientists who are just true birders and also, and they just love to go out. They want to see such and such on a distant continent and they'd give anything to go see it, but they're also spend lots of money and also first class scientists, you know, and that's a marvelous combination. I can't do that. I'd like to think I'm a good scientist, but if there's a rare bird just a few miles away, rare bird from my geographic area, I can't get excited about going to see it. I, I think of it as a bird that may have some kind of inner ear infection and lost its way. And, <laughs> and so what if it's here in my geographic locality and, and uh, it belongs out in California? But now if it were singing, totally different game. I would want to know what's in that bird's head. I would want to know if it is singing a normal song for where it should be, if it has picked up something odd. I would learn something about this individual other than, oh, it's a bird that's lost its way. So I'd be all over it if I could learn something. But if I can't learn anything other other than just seeing it or adding it to a list, uh, it, it wouldn't interest me. Well, that explains the, the quote that you have on your website, somewhere always the sun is rising and somewhere always the birds are singing. And you also say a bad, a bad day has no bird song in it. <laughs> Uh, so it's the it's the singing part of it that has really captured your attention more than anything. It is. It is the singing tells you something about what is in the head of the bird. Oh, like two years ago, I said, um, well, it was just last year. It was a brown thrasher. I wanted to be able to estimate by ear how many different songs he could sing, and it took hours and hours of listening. But sure. I came up wow. with you know the. 1,200 and some songs as an estimate of what he could do. But to get to know that thrasher, to listen to, well, I picked 10 different songs that he sang that I knew I could recognize when I heard them again. And they were all imitations of birds that I already knew, like a black-capped chickadee sings a beautiful, (whistles) nice whistled song. And... I would be able to recognize that again. I'd recognize a loon and the imitation of, of an actual warbler and, uh, oh, the flicker. And what else did he imitate? Metal arcs. He had a couple of metal arc imitations. So I could simply start counting 
uh, and I had all this recorded so I could review the recordings later. So I cheated a little bit in that respect, but I wanted to know if I could do this on the fly in the field. And sure enough, I can, and I'm sure anybody can. So he sings a thousand different songs and you hear your one chosen song only once in that thousand where the math is pretty simple. You get to say, well, he probably sang about a thousand different songs in those thousands. If my one song I was listening to occurred only once, well, then you pick more songs. I pick 10 songs. I don't know how many tens of thousands of songs I listened to to get a more accurate estimate of how many different songs he sang. And you can do this uh, with a catbird, with a mockingbird, with, you know, that robin in your backyard. There are ways to listen to him that would be lots of fun. And you could estimate how many different of those carols, as we call them, uh, the cheerily cheer up cheerio. How many how many of those cheerios does he sing? How many different ones? And and how how does he program the presentation of all of them? I think the most satisfying, fulfilling, and it's just selfish, is being able to listen and knowing what to listen for and having some kind of an inkling as to what is going on in that bird's head. I cannot record a bird and enjoy it if it's only for me these days. I have to I have to have some purpose for recording that bird, some outlet, some way to share that recording with others to try to bring them to that same kind of satisfaction that I have found. So that's that that in a nutshell is is my relationship uh, and my challenge to the birding community to bring them beyond their listing, which many of them find totally fulfilling, but to bring them beyond their listing to seek something deeper.